Matthew chapter 26. And we have had the privilege of walking through Matthew's gospel in most places, keeping the big picture in mind, not so much going paragraph by paragraph, but big picture with the goal of becoming better readers of Matthew's gospel in the future. So we're zooming out, we're getting big picture messages, and um, we're going to continue to do that in 26 and 27. Graham began chapter 26 uh, last week, and we'll look at it again this week. Now, as you notice, there are 75 verses in this chapter, and so I'm not going to read all of those uh, for us. That's why in Graham's email I had everybody read through chapter 26 and 27. If you haven't done that this week, make sure you do it for next week. Read through these two chapters and it'll give you uh, a better perspective as we approach it in the sermon time. But what you have in chapters 26 and 27, this is a, a, a complete unit here of, um, of Matthew's presentation of the life of Jesus. And you've arrived at the place in Matthew's gospel where everything has been headed the whole time. That, of course, is to the cross. The place, the time, the person in and whom God will secure our salvation. Where atonement for our sins will be made and through which and through whom we will be able to be reconciled to God. This is where all of Matthew's gospel has been headed. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you'll recall, three times already has instructed his disciples that when we get to Jerusalem, you need to understand that I'm going to be delivered over and I'm going to be crucified. That's why we're headed here. And not just Matthew's gospel that's been headed, headed to this point, but really the entire Bible. Beginning all the way back, I suppose, in Genesis chapter 3, when you had the willful fall of man into sin, the disobedience against God, and God's wonderful promise right then and there to send a deliverer, to send a Savior. And that whole time in your Old Testament is tracing that theme you study, your bio, you study your Old Testament and you miss the theme and the point of Christ, you've missed everything. It was all pointing to Him and what God was going to do through Him in places like Matthew 26 and 27 where we have His cross work is what it's all been headed toward until this point. Jesus came, Son of God came into the world on a rescue mission. Part of that mission entailed living a righteous life for us as a human being. And that's been accomplished. He's fulfilled the will of the Father. He's obeyed the law completely from His heart at every moment. He's fulfilled all righteousness, just as He told John the Baptist it was absolutely necessary for Him to do. And now what is necessary is that he get turned over to the Romans and get crucified on the cross for our sins. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 26, which kind of set the theme and the context for these two chapters. We'll pray and ask God's blessing, and then we'll jump into the message. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now let's just pause and ask God's blessing on this chapter. Father, we come before you in utter dependency upon you for all things, including the ability to spiritually comprehend and apprehend by faith what Christ is doing for us here in his sufferings. Father, I ask that through your Spirit, I would be gifted now in these next minutes to present a message that is faithful to your word, faithful to the gospel message, glorifying to Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, effective for your people. I ask this by your grace because I do not deserve this. And so I ask for your grace to help me now for the sake of your people, for their edification. I ask that each person would be able to hear and understand the good news of Jesus and that it would be a joy to them this morning. I ask this in his name, amen. So our primary goal in Matthew's gospel is we keep reiterating is that we want to become better readers of Matthew's gospel. Of course, one of the things that we emphasize here at Calvary is personal reading of scripture. We have the great gift of having God's word in multiple translations available to us and study Bibles and resources. And we have the ability to read his word and certainly he wants us to do it, but we want to be good readers of his word. When it comes to Matthew's gospel, we want to understand Matthew's main intentions and the, uh, the direction he's headed and what he's trying to get across. That helps us be a better reader. And the most profitable way now that you can read chapter 26 and 27 of Matthew's gospel, the sufferings of Christ, the specific sufferings of Christ now, and the cross itself, the best way you can read this is in a, a very personable fashion or a very personable way. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. You have to read these as, as though, and this is how they're coming across, or they should, and I'll show that to you in a minute, that what Jesus is doing here in his suffering is for you. That he is going to the cross and suffering and dying for you. You don't want to just view this generally. You want to view it specifically. This is your Savior doing what's necessary for you to save you from your sins. That's how you will gain the most profit from reading these passages if you understand that. That's how the Apostle Paul would have read them. Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the second half of that verse, he says, The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how Paul's doing that? How he personally applies the cross work of Christ to him. With the understanding that when Jesus was doing this, he knew exactly who he was doing this for. 
Like Jesus knew and loved the Apostle Paul and went to the cross for the Apostle Paul. That's how he reads it. This was for me. You know, this is the trajectory that Matthew's been setting us on his entire, that entire gospel. In Matthew 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, of course, where Jesus is named. He says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, did you ever catch this? His people from their sins. That's a possessive pronoun, Right? Remember grammar and how important it is? Who was Jesus here to save? His people. He was named that with that mission because that's who he came to save. I've come to save my people from their sins. Very much what Paul was saying. He loved me and gave himself for me. This was His mission to save his people from their sins and the way he had to do that was through the cross. And you notice Matthew 121 doesn't say, might save my people or provide the way of salvation for his people. It says he will save his people from their sins. See, unless we understand this, we shouldn't be singing, Christ will hold me fast. Unless you understand the specific nature of the work of Christ for you, then how could you ever guarantee He will hold you fast? Or have any expectation that He would hold you fast? It's because that's the mission revealed in His name. He's here to save His people from their sins. And when you read the cross work like that, you can read it and say, look it, He secured my salvation for me. It's a done and sealed deal. Those words in Matthew's uh, version of the cross don't come across, but Jesus' words in other passages that say, it is finished. Well, what is finished? The atonement. What was necessary to save my people from their sins. I have completed that for them. My people, says Jesus, will be saved from their sins and I will do it. And the way he had to do it was a cross. And when you read through Matthew 26 and 27, you have to make that very personal. And I can tell you from personal experience, growing up in a church, it's very easy to just see generally, Jesus died on the cross for sins. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And actually have a level of belief in that to be true but not to see the fact that he died for my sins. To not see that personal nature of the cross that only the Spirit can affect for us. For Jesus, friends, the cross work was all personal. He knew you personally and knew he was dying for you. You know, we won't turn there, but I'll have then put it up on the screen. In John chapter 17, this is in the same context, by the way, of the beginning of Matthew 26, which is the upper room with the disciples observing the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper. In John's gospel, we get let in, in chapter 13 through 17, on that, that what we call the upper room discourse, all this teaching that he gave to his disciples before Gethsemane. And he said this in verse 6. Well, he's praying this rather to the Father. 
He's praying this high priestly prayer before he goes off to Gethsemane. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I would say that these ones that the Father gave to him are the same as Matthew 121 and the mission revealed in his name, his people. They're mine now. See, this is the terminology of possession. They belong to me. They've been given to me. I'm here to save them from their sins. Catch this in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. I shock you that Jesus would say that. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. That is his people. For they are yours. In verse 20, just in case you're saying, well, he's just talking about the disciples that were right there in the room. No, look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? While he was here on this earth, that he knew he was going to bear your sins personally and go to the cross for you? Do you read the cross work of Christ in such a personal way? You have permission to from God himself. He wants you to. It was very personal to Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own, my people, they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the shepherd. My people are the sheep. They are the ones for whom I'm about to lay down my life. He says in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. That's you and me, by the way. Not of the fold of Israel. I have sheep, and they don't even know their sheep yet. I have sheep, they're not even born yet. And I must bring them into the fold as well. This is my mission. This is what I must do. They will listen to my voice. That's how this works. You know, when you heard, we talked about this earlier before the scripture reading, there was a time when you heard the gospel and it was effectual to you. And by that I mean this. You heard it and all of a sudden it clicked and you knew Jesus died for your sins. That was the call that Jesus is saying. You heard the voice of the shepherd. Just like Matthew did. Follow me. And Matthew gets up from his tax booth and follows Jesus. That's how this works. They will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Friends, he knew you. The cross was personal for you. He laid down his life specifically for you. I laid down my life for the sheep. Now, in that very same context of John chapter 10, there were those who were confronting Jesus. And they said, just tell us plainly whether you're the Messiah. Now, his disciples believed he was. But they questioned him and said, tell us plainly that you're the Messiah And he answered them in verse 25. I have the slide for that as well. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. Mm -mm. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. That's how this works. They know me. They follow me. Even the sheep who haven't been born yet will hear my voice when the time comes and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given uh, them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What he's teaching in this particular thing, when he's saying... Okay, I'm the good shepherd. I have sheep. They know me. They follow me. I lay down my life for them. You're not my sheep. You don't believe in me because you're not my sheep. But I lay down my life for the sheep. And they will follow me. And you see how securing this is? Because this is true and this is the way salvation works and because of the work of Christ and and laying down his life for us, we are secure in him and no one can tear us apart. This is why we can confidently sing, he will hold me fast. Those he loves are his delight. This is why we can confidently sing, remember the song, uh, Crown Him with Many Crowns? I think I have a slide for the ones I want to say. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. My praise shall never, never fail through all eternity. This is the way to read the sufferings of Christ. Personally, for you. It was personal to Christ. He knew you. You were given to Him by the Father. He came and secured your salvation through His work on the cross. Now, doesn't that make the cross work of Christ in these two chapters just come alive to us? When we see what's happening for us through Jesus... So read this in a very personal way. And now notice in chapter 26, back in Matthew 26 now, and notice in these first two verses that Matthew makes a connection between what you're about to read in the crucifixion of Christ and the Passover. When Jesus had finished uh, all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In God's sovereign and providential working of all these events and the cross itself, it happened during the Passover observance in Jerusalem. That's very important to catch. That there's a connection there that Matthew and the other gospel writers are making. You remember, we've talked about this before in studying Matthew's gospel. When you get to this Passion Week, they're all on their way there for the Passover celebration. This week-long event that they would be there culminating on Thursday night in that Uh, Passover meal that they would observe, bringing the sacrifices in, everything that went as a part of it. And that was the event, you'll recall, that commemorates God's rescue and salvation of the people of Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. Do you remember that 
the Israelites were in captivity for 400 years and God decides it's time to deliver them out. They couldn't save themselves. They would have stayed in slavery until another nation came in and conquered Egypt. But God determined to rescue them out, His people, to save them from slavery to Egypt. So He sends a deliverer. His name is Moses. Moses, of course, goes to Pharaoh and says, you've got to let the people of the Lord go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God sends a number of plagues. And over and over again, God, or, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, refuses to let them go until the last act of judgment. And God warned his people and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the angel through there and he is going to kill every firstborn in every home of Egypt. And the only way to bypass this judgment for your household is through this Passover observance. You were to take a lamb, remember? Slaughter the lamb. And then take the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the home. And what? When he passed through, if he saw the blood, he would pass over that home and they'd be delivered from God's judgment. And what Matthew and others, I think, are subtly pointing out, probably specifically to their Jewish brethren who were there every year to observe this Passover, is that that celebration and that slaughtering of that lamb and the blood of the lamb was to point to Jesus Christ. That the way in which we are saved and delivered from a far greater slavery to sin. We read about that this morning, didn't we, in Ephesians 2. Far greater slavery to sin were delivered through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, through His blood. That here, we must now be looking to Jesus Christ and trusting in His sacrifice on Calvary so that the Death and judgment of God passes over us. I mean, Paul brings this out very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, when Paul read the book of Exodus and read about the Passover, after now knowing Christ, he looks back and whom does he see? Jesus He looks into the Bible and he sees Christ now. And Paul and the other New Testament writers love to make the connection between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Testament of our Bible and the New, showing who it was all pointing to, Jesus Christ for us. I love this story Bible I have for our kids, or, well, not anymore, but I did. And... It wasn't your typical story Bible, like cartoonish looking one, uh, where you know, you'd see them having a con- the detailed stories and they're having a conversation with a little bubble above their head or whatever. This is called the Big Picture Story Bible, and it traces the theme of salvation through the whole Bible. Much of what Graham is, is doing in his Old Testament survey and showing how it's all pointing to uh, God's redemption of his people. And I love the part, it gets to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then the disciples receive the Spirit. And there's this picture in there of the disciples, all of them with smiles on their faces, and they've got 
the scrolls laid out of Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places, and they're looking at all these. And they, it says, Jesus' followers were amazed as they listened and as they read. Before they had said, we have seen the Lord. In other words, they saw him in person. But now they could read God's holy book and say, even here, especially here, we have seen the Lord. See, that means you and I can look on the pages of Scripture and see the Lord everywhere. The Spirit enables us to see Jesus Christ. All those stories of the Old Testament that maybe as children you sit and suffer through in Sunday school class and VBS and other things come alive when God saves a person. You all of a sudden now, it all makes sense and it starts to click and tie together. They're not just disconnected stories for informational purposes. These are all accounts pointing towards the person and work of Jesus and what he would do in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. So there's a connection here. There's lots of connections that Matthew has made throughout his gospel. But there's also a crossover happening in chapter 26. This crossover will change forevermore the way God has relationship to and with his people. In Matthew chapter 26, a new covenant is being instituted. Look at it in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, up until this time, the people of Israel had been under the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai through Moses. And it was a covenant that the people of God broke over and over again. The obligations and demands placed upon these people, they could not and would not keep. But God now through Jesus, is doing something different. Instituting what we call the new covenant. What the author to the Hebrews calls a better covenant, founded on better promises. All of the obligations of this covenant agreement with God are fulfilled in Christ. So that if you're in Christ, everything has been done for you. This becomes an eternal, saving, life-giving covenant for His people. And it all comes, of course, through the sacrifice of Christ. All covenants had to be solidified in blood. And this one was solidified in the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything was changing now through Christ. And if you think about it, if you were Matthew and you had a heart for your fellow Jewish brothers that had rejected Christ and they were trusting in the old covenant, the fact that they were descended from Abraham, the fact that they were covenant keepers with God through his law. And Matthew is trying to show them 
that you can't get to the Father through that anymore. The relationship we must have with God now comes through this new covenant in the blood of Christ. We always say to people, you know, Christianity isn't about religion, it's about relationship. And that's absolutely true. But there's only one kind of relationship that a person can have with God, a saving relationship. That's a covenant one. And the way in which you would have a saving covenant, eternal relationship with God now is through the new covenant in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ whose central focus is the forgiveness of sins. That what Christ has done through the cross is provided in this covenant the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that good news? Let me tell you who that's good news for. If you're a sinner and you look at God's holy law and you say, I can't keep that for one day, not from my heart. I mean, we just sang it, for my love is often cold. My heart is often indifferent to God. I try, I fail. Sure, I gain victory, but it's never perfect. And even in my victorious moments, there's the sin of pride creeping in, reminding me how great I am. That's why we need a covenant, friends, that's a better covenant with better promises, founded in the blood of Christ where you have forgiveness of all your sins. That way it can be, the covenant can never be broken. God would never abandon you in it. It's because it's founded in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to get out of it. If it's provided perfect forgiveness, then what sin could you commit to get yourself out of it? And the answer to that, friends, is nothing. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for you, you see. You have forgiveness. And we go out of our way every week in our liturgy to bring out a confession and acknowledgement of our sin and failures, but then very quickly go into the forgiveness of sins provided through Jesus. How many of you have had weeks where you felt like such a failure in your spiritual walk? Like you... You dared, you didn't even want to show your face. Nobody knows what a failure you were through the week and you certainly probably didn't come in and let everybody know. But how many weeks has that been? Why do you show up week upon week? It's because you have forgiveness. The relationship is still there. The deal is still sealed. There's nothing you've done this week to get yourself out of it because Christ has done everything necessary to bring you into it, you see? This is a wonderful way to think about your relationship with God. We all will battle with personal sin. And if you think you're not battling with personal sin, that's problematic. Because the people of God, the more they understand the word, the more they see Jesus, the more they understand the holiness of God, the more of their own sinfulness they see. Read any biography of any Christian, really, whoever had a book written about him or her, and you'll see there is a, there is a, a common theme in all of them. I'm a sinner still. Still. 
I need a Savior still. This is while they're doing great things for God. They're recognizing their own failures and sins. What keeps them going is a proper understanding of what Christ has done on the cross in bringing them forgiveness. He cleanses the sin and He cleanses the conscience. The devil has nothing to say, friends, against you if you're under the blood of Christ. Paul asks the question in Romans 8, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Well, you could bring lots of charges against all of us. You could say lots of things about how we've all failed. If we had a reality show about our life and they followed us around 24-7 with a camera, we would all see how sinful we all are. But Paul's point is this, that because Christ has died for their sins, they're forgiven. And now God has justified them in the person and work of Christ. So there's no more charges that can be brought against them. Let me just close by having you turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And the author of the Hebrews here is going to talk about this better covenant. More excellent covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and now here he's going to quote from Jeremiah 31, demonstrating that this new covenant had been already promised. The new covenant Jesus said, I'm going to initiate now in my blood. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Notice, the Lord will do everything required in this covenant. I will put my laws into their minds. Not just the external on the, on the tablets of stone. Hey, obey this, do this, don't do that. He would take those laws, those good and righteous laws, and embed them on the hearts of his people. He would actually bring, as Ezekiel calls it, a heart transformation. You get a, a transplant of a new heart with the laws of God written upon it. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my neighbor. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is a unique feature, by the way, of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, all of Israel was not promised salvation. Each individual person was not promised salvation. Paul draws that out in Romans chapter 9. But under the new covenant, everyone in it, everyone in Christ is guaranteed salvation, and they all know the Lord personally. Verse 12, because it's all founded in this phrase, exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 26. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. 
and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus said, this is the cup. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins so that God looks at you, friends, and he looks at me and I say, he says, I'm gonna show you mercy from your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more. That's what we're about to celebrate now on the Lord's table, is it not? This remembrance week upon week is why we do it every single week now. We're leaving here remembering we're a forgiven people. So no matter how your week went before, this week can be new again. Forgiven through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, help us now as we transition. Help us now as we take your the Lord's Supper, to to feel. We know it's the Spirit's work that we can experience the truth of these passages, that it can really affect our hearts and give us joy and peace and and, uh, let us feel the cleansing of conscience and the forgiveness of sins. We don't hide our sins from you. We confess them openly and we can do that because we know that we have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus that we don't have to run from you, we don't have to hide from you. We can look to Christ and be reminded of this wonderful, new, eternal, saving covenant we have through his blood. So will you please do that for all of us here this morning as we sing and partake of the Lord's Supper. We ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. As we prepare for the Lord's table,